the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Hugh Hewitt. This is the new segment of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome to the interview. Today I am talking with Professor Andrew Roberts, a often a guest over the 20 years of this show. He is a famous historian. He's an Englishman, lives in London, graduate of Cambridge. He's written so many great books that we've talked about over the years, but it's been a few years since I last talked to Professor Roberts. Welcome back, Professor Roberts. Great to have you. Thank you very much indeed, Hugh. It's great to be on the show. Now, I have to tell the backstory um, of why you came to my attention. I have to write a column for the Post, Washington Post, once a week. And I wanted to write about the party politics as they are in the United States right now. And I remembered back in the book Salisbury, Victorian Titan, the first Andrew Roberts book that I uh, I read 21 years ago, there was a quote that Lord Palmerston said about Salisbury being always on the attack. I went and I found it. I put it in the column and it ran. And then I began to reread this book, which I'm holding up for the benefit of those who are watching on YouTube, Salisbury. And I thought to myself, I have not talked to Andrew Roberts in a long time. How have you been? You must be very strong being able to hold up that book. I think it's about 900 pages long, wasn't it? It is a terrific reread after 20 years, by the way. It has endured well. I guess that's what happens when you write when everything is at your... You were the official historian of Lord Salisbury, were you not? I was, yes. Three of them had died before me. um, (laughs) And so I was, uh, in a way, uh, quite lucky to even get the opportunity in my mid-20s to to write the official biography of a prime minister. Uh, three times a prime minister, and and maybe the greatest of the 19th century prime ministers. Do you have an opinion on that, by the way, between Gladstone, Disraeli, and him? I, I do, actually, yes. I think that uh, if you, as Salisbury did, bring your country to the greatest level of prestige and power that it's ever had, um, and the largest empire that the world's ever seen, I think you can look both Disraeli and Gladstone in the uh, in the face, frankly. Okay, we'll come back to that. I also want to let people know that you are the author most recently of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, which is now regarded by most Churchill students as the single greatest single volume history of the great man, including Dr. Larry Arne, uh, who is a part of the official historian team of the Churchill uh, legacy, beginning with Lord Randolph Churchill, then through Martin Gilbert and to Larry and beyond. So uh, you must still be going everywhere and selling Churchill Walking with Destiny wherever you go. Well, uh, sadly, of course, not in the last year, but I have got um, plans to come back to the United States as soon as uh, Britons are allowed back there to um, to speak at three or four more um, places. So, yes, it's been wonderful. I think I've gone to 28 states of the United States with the, with the uh, Churchill book. And um, it's it's one of those fascinating things about Churchill, but he's, I think, even more popular in America than he is in Britain. And and this book was widely regarded as sort of the definitive. What made it different from all the other ones, in your opinion, Andrew? Oh, well, I was very fortunate to have a huge sort of avalanche of sources that came out at the same time that I signed the contract. 
Her Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. Oh, my. So I was very fortunate to be able to use King George VI diaries, wartime diaries, and he met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War and told, was told all the secrets of the uh, of the government by Churchill. They got on extremely well, so that was very helpful. And uh, also there were 51 new sets of papers that were deposited at Churchill College Archives in Cambridge, which were, um, which were a great help, as you can imagine. Uh, Professor Robert, did uh, this is a tangent, but that's what happens in a in a podcast as well as a radio interview. Did the king know about the uh, the Luftwaffe raids of which Churchill was aware, but which he did not speak for fear of revealing uh, the intelligence apparatus that had been set up to intercept German signals? Uh, yes, he he knew about um, the uh, ultra decrypt that we got as a result of the Enigma. Um, machine, but he also knew about the um, uh, nuclear secrets, you know, Churchill told him which admirals and generals and ministers were going to be hired and fired, which countries were going to be invaded, when and under what circumstances. There was nothing that uh, that Churchill uh, hid from, um, from the king. Now, you know, the American public now is under the impression that every prime minister has a relationship with their sovereign as those are depicted in the crown. Is that true? <laughs> Please do not believe a single thing that you see in the crowd. It is a, it, it's an absolute travesty of uh, the truth. Um, it's written by a man called Peter Morgan, who's very anti-royalist. And uh, apart from Her Majesty the Queen, everybody comes out badly from being on the, uh, on the crown. And uh, and the, the show about Winston Churchill being responsible for killing thousands of people in the London smog is yes. complete rubbish from beginning to end. So please don't take the crown as history. Well, when <laughs> Margaret Thatcher was uh, done in by the uh, the series, I began to sour on it. And especially when they skipped over the fact that she emerged from a bombing, resolute, and with her face turned against terrorism, and they left that out, I thought to myself, this is truly a left-wing project. It really is, and it has been from the beginning, actually. And a friend of mine, um, Hugo Vickers, a, a great expert on the royal family, in the first series, he wrote a, a little pamphlet um, delineating no fewer than 1,000 factual errors in the first, in the first series alone. Uh, he since bumped that up to... Uh, to, I think, 3,000 errors over the five series. So, frankly, you really cannot take it, anything it says at all as being, uh, as being anything more than, than light entertainment. So, Professor Roberts, before I go, I've got like five questions I must ask you. But I have to first ask, everyone has been impacted by the pandemic differently. It has barely touched my working life because my working life occurs from studios. You are a historian and a lecturer, so you obviously can only lecture on Zoom, except for those rare occasions when people gather. How is the history part going? Very well. I'm very fortunate that the, my biography of George III, uh, which is going to be coming out in America in November, um, was I needed to start writing it just at the moment that the pandemic hit. So actually, as far as timings were concerned, I was tremendously lucky. Lots of other... Friends of mine, uh, historians, have been uh, very badly hit because, of course, all the libraries and the archives and the research materials have been closed. But it just was such that uh, through sheer serendipity, uh, it got me at, um, at, at a good time for me, really. 
Now, even giant brains and talents like you have to have a lot more free time on your hands. Have you consumed more? Are, are you watching Endeavor? Are you going back through Inspector Morse episodes? What are you doing with the new free time you have on your hands? <laughs> well, <laughs> I um, it's lovely because I, I have had a chance to see much more of my wife and children that, uh, than, than usual. And uh, we've also been doing the... Um, uh, the, the binge watching of the Scandi Noir whodunits, which uh, which we enjoy very much, and various other shows like that. So um, so yes, it's it hasn't been, and I've also had a chance to catch up with some novel reading as well, which I uh, I haven't really done for years because I've just been concentrating on on nonfiction so much. Well, I think the book that I have repre- uh, re- recommended to people the most during. The Pandemic is a book that you wrote a few years back, which Jim Ciccone, who is uh, vice chair of President George H.W. Bush's presidential library, recommended to me at the Metropolitan uh, a long time ago. He said, you've got to read Napoleon, to which I said to him, I don't like Napoleon. And I said that because I'd read the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien and a lot of history, and I considered him to be a dictator and a horrible human being. And Jim looked at me and said, put down his fork. He said, I guarantee you, that if you begin Napoleon, you will not be able to stop it. So I put it on my audio book, and I've done a lot of walking and running during the pandemic. And I must tell you, Professor Roberts, it's magnificent. I don't want to like him. But at the end of your book, I have to admire him. Well, look, I'm an Englishman, so you can imagine how much stronger I had those kind of feelings. He tried to invade uh, England, after all. But um, but you're right. Uh, he actually was a completely different figure from the one that um, from the one that most uh, British historians who produce him as a kind of proto Hitler figure. He absolutely was nothing like that at all. He was the Enlightenment on horseback, and so I uh, I feel exactly the same way as you do. And by the way, the book is going great guns in America. It sells about a thousand copies a week in the United States. I think that's me. I, honestly, I, everybody I tell who wants a book, and I know it's got to be a guaranteed winner, I say Napoleon. Anyone who wrote 22,000 letters, if I've got that number right, uh, yes. is, is a daunting task for a historian, and you want one that you can trust. And, and I don't know how you... Aren't they as well? They're, they're very uh, evocative letters and fascinating and beautifully written and so on. So, uh, uh, Professor Roberts, I, I want to quickly get a comment from you on each of your books at the beginning of this, the interview. Uh, we've mentioned Churchill and Napoleon. I am going to come back to Salisbury. But ter- ter- tell us about, for example, the storm of war, which if I love Salisbury, but the storm of war made your bones in international circles. Why? Um, it was a single volume history of the Second World War, of which you can imagine there are an awful lot. But I was very fortunate there also to... Uh, meet somebody who has the largest private collection of Second World War um, documents in the world. And um, there were all sorts of completely fascinating things that uh, made you think again about very important aspects of the war. I I came across a letter from um, Alfred Yerdl, Hitler's um, deputy chief of staff at the time of the Dunkirk evacuation, which proves beyond any doubt that um, there was no... Uh, it explodes this um, conspiracy theory that uh, Hitler allowed the British expeditionary force to escape from uh, Dunkirk, for example. And there was just so much information that it was a total delight for any historian to be able to work on it. 
Well, Malcolm Gladwell has uh, made popular the understanding that you're not really good at something until you've done it at least 10,000 times. Maybe that's <laughs> the identification of a document, but, but when did it become second nature to you to write mammoth histories that are also popular? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you, um, uh, you've asked me that because, A, nobody's ever asked me that before, and B, I've never really thought about it before. Um, the fact is that I think that we're turning against, I think there is such a thing as the general reader, and I think we're turning against the idea that our attention span should automatically just get smaller and shorter and shorter. And so I think um, one of the reasons that people have been buying um, Napoleon, which is a long book, and Churchill, which is a long book, is actually because they uh, enjoy the, the long form, and they're not scared of it. And the, maybe publishers actually ought to look again at their assumptions that we're all just getting thicker and thicker. Oh, I agree with you completely, but I also think there needs to be a pedigree, that we have to understand that there are historians who are good at this, and there are from very bad historians, as the 1619 Project showed us, and you're one of the eminent historians of my lifetime. I'm curious about when did you learn how to do history? Oh, well, I, re I read history at Cambridge, and I was very fortunate to have uh, a couple of um, really genius doms who taught me there. And so, and I'd already fallen in love with history because my dad read it at Oxford, and, and we used to talk history when I was young and growing up. And so it's been an important part of my life, really, since I was sort of six years old or so. Well, there are two questions there. One, if your father was an Oxford man, how did you end up at Cambridge? Uh, because he was also at the same school I went to, which I was expelled from. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why? We're going why? into areas that I don't usually go into on radio shows, Hugh. <laughs> well, this is the podcast and a radio show, and people, you can't leave that out on the table and then not take a nibble. <laughs> It was it was a combination of potentially utterly disastrous combination of drinking and climbing. Oh, what a surprise! Climb up <laughs> I used to get drunk and climb up buildings, and I think quite rightly the school thought that the sooner they got rid of me, uh, the less likely they were going to be involved in some tragic disaster. Well, consider for a moment the great great relief you've just given to thousands of parents who think that their boys are different from all the other boys out there. They're not. <laughs> boys are boys. So you go over to Cambridge and you and you read history. And I had some great historians. Frank Friedel. I had some great historians as an undergraduate. But I never set before myself. I have written a lot of books, but they've been polemics. I have never set before myself the task of organizing and the care and the time and the attention that it takes to tackle one life, much less the, the dozen lives that you've deeply thrown yourself into. Uh, how do you go about it? Because I'm going to end up asking you how would you would tackle Trump. But first, I want to ask how you tackle anybody. Well, I think the first thing, actually, funnily enough, it's, it, this is one of the reasons that it's easier, I think, to write a history book or a biography than a polemical book, is that you've got narrative. You've got the natural uh, question that everybody always has when they're reading a book, what happened next? And so you're answering the central question through chronology uh, and through, um, through narrative. So you're at, you actually sort of start with a huge advantage because you're you're really just answering, you're telling a story and you're, and you're answering the question that is in everybody's mind. What happened next? I see. Well, just organizing. At some point, 
Doris Kearns wouldn't tell me this either, and she was one of my first professors, how you get your arms around all this material in a way that it does not completely collapse the table on which it is sitting and, and the head in which it's residing. Let me go to the, the subject about Salisbury, then the general subject, then to Trump. When I went to Salisbury, I did so because the American system is straining to become the British system. This is Hugh Hewitt's take, is that we really want a parliamentary system. We are, we are undone by the separation of powers. We are undone by an executive who has limited powers. We are undone by a written constitution. And at least the Democrats want to be the Brits. And so I've been reading in Victorian prime minister history back to Palmerston, and I'm thinking to myself, this is very, very instructive for Americans on the good and the down of it. Do you think that era, the 19th century in Great Britain, is of particular importance right now to Americans, or am I overlaying my own interest on the period in which I'm living? No, I think, you, I think you've got, you're on to something um, there. I really do. I think that, um, of course, you need to have big personalities, which are uh, vital, especially in your presidential uh, system. But, um, but don't, you also need to have good parliamentarians, impressive individuals and the great thing about the victorian period in both your country actually and and in mine was that you had people who ordinary people would look up to in society whether they were politicians or not they'd achieved things in their lives that were obviously impressive they they'd been scientists or soldiers or whatever it was and um and they were people who you who you looked up to and felt a natural sense of admiration for i afraid that's something that I think is missing, certainly in the United Kingdom and also in your country, when it comes to, you know, run-of-the-mill congressmen and, and MPs. Does Prime Minister Johnson have within him, after both the epic Brexit struggle and now the COVID struggle, to grow to the level of a, a significant prime minister? I think he does, yes. And, and actually, we're seeing now with this... Uh, tremendous rollout of the vaccines here in England, um, which I think we're the, we're the second or third best in the world when it comes to, um, to the vaccines now after Israel, that um, he actually has, uh, rather like so many um, prime ministers in the past, taken a, a, a severe battering at the beginning. And, um, and now he's been in the job for over a year. He seems to have, uh, have grasped this an awful, awful lot better than certainly than than when he began. And the Brexit struggle, of course, was a five-year thing which would have been completely exhausting to anybody, uh, let alone somebody who then did catch uh, COVID very seriously himself. And, and, you know, he's virtually on his deathbed for three days. So I think that um, it's important to, um, to factor all that in and to see that uh, with a majority of 80 and um, he's running equal with the Labour Party in the opinion polls, despite us having lost 114,000 killed, killed by COVID, but actually he's doing a much better job than, uh, than you'd probably guess from a lot of the, um, of the news outlets. D does he intrigue you as an individual about whom there will be a book like Salisbury written, a book like uh, uh, Lord Blake's Disraeli, a book like your Napoleon, after a sufficient period of time? Is he interesting enough? Uh, yes, he most certainly is. Plus, he's hilarious. There you um, go. He's an extremely funny, funny man. And the key thing is, of course, that it's going to be jolly difficult for any biographer to do to outdo his autobiography, because um, because Boris is obviously going to bring out a uh, 
uh, autobiography one day, which will not only be a bestseller because he's been prime minister, but also because it's going to be a, a very engaging and well-written and funny book. Now, what I quoted in my Washington Post column from your Salisbury book was Palmerston's a saying of the talent of Robert Cecil when he was 50 years as younger. Is there anyone young right now in Great Britain that you as a seasoned historian at the top of their powers would suggest to a young colleague they follow very closely because there's a book there, there's a career, there's a man, there's a woman? Golly, um, that's a good question. Uh, there are a few, uh, a few of the young MPs um, now who have um, made themselves come to the fore at least, um, especially the ones from what we call the red wall seats, which are normally Labour, have been Labour since the 1930s, but are now Conservative. And um, these are people who have a very robust uh, sort of working-class, uh, blue-collar um, attitude towards um, Conservative politics who are extremely impressive individually. I'm not going to go through their, their names. I'll probably get them wrong. But the thing is that there are five or six of them and I think any of them would, uh, in, say, 20 years' time or so, become very impressive prime ministers. Now, what I quoted Palmerston about saying about Salisbury is that he knew one big thing, which was don't defend yourself for your cause, attack, the attack, attack. Is there anyone like that now who comes to mind who is attacking, attack? And that is, by the way, my advice to the Republicans now that they are in opposition. Do what Cecil did, attack, attack, attack. Uh, yes, well, we've got um, we have got a few uh, pretty good uh, attack dogs uh, actually. Um, Michael Gove is a is a very impressive when he's on the uh, offensive. Um, actually, funny enough, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, who many laugh at and take the Mickey out of because he's he's sort of an old-fashioned uh, figure in many ways. But when you actually listen to what he has to say, he's got a ruthless rationality and logic to him which is, um, is tremendously impressive as well. So, yes, I don't think the, um, the Tories, uh, uh, because, just because they're in government, aren't able to go on to the attack. Penultimate question before I jump to the current time. Uh, Gladstone and Salisbury are both deeply Christian men, and their faith is evident, and you take it seriously, and you write about it seriously, and it informs their politics. It's increasingly difficult to find people in American politics, I don't know about United Kingdom politics, about whom that can be said, although George W. Bush clearly was an evangelical in all of his actions and his approach. Um, is that gone? Are we so much a secular world now that it's almost going to be impossible for the kind of believer that Salisbury and Gladstone was to rise to the top of any democracy? Um, oh gosh, again, an extremely good question. It's, it was said by Alastair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's um, chief of staff, we don't do God, as in don't mention religion. It's a, uh, it's a vote loser. It, uh, it puts people off and, um, and just don't go there, which um, I'm afraid it seems to be very much the same uh, today. There's a, um, there's a, a huge dearth of that. And when we did have a uh, religiously um, uh, committed Christian as a party leader, a man called Tim Farron, who led the Liberal Democrats, um, he, was, um, he was basically ridiculed for it. I mean, he was, he was treated as a sort of ludicrous figure because he believed in, uh, in, in God. And so it's a, uh, a rather sort of nerve-wracking period, I 
questions today, and it isn't helped in any way by the um, Archbishop of Canterbury, who has been uh, who's been just abominable when it comes to uh, claiming that essentially that Christianity and capitalism are um, uh, mutually exclusive. I, I wasn't aware that he had done that, but that is not unlike the problem I have as a Catholic which is that my Pope is, seems to be uh, persuaded that it's almost impossible to reconcile the free market with Catholicism. Another day, another story. In, prime, in Australia, the prime minister is quite a devout man and seems to be succeeding. But other than that, I, I don't know of any. Um, no, it's, it's, you're right. It's difficult to, um, it's difficult to, to spot them. All right. Let, let me turn to the very last question about the old before I come up to the present. And that is your George III biography. Um, I'm curious why you thought him now, and if you think it will work in the United States the way that Napoleon, Churchill, uh, Salisbury even works in the United States. Um, I, <laughs> well, I mean, those people, I think, can be thought of as heroes. I'm not for yes. one minute expecting Americans to consider um, George III to be a, a hero. Clearly not. Um, but I do hope that I'm going to be able to persuade you to take another look at him. He was not the, um, the tyrant of the Declaration of Independence. He certainly wasn't the villain that you see in uh, Hamilton the musical. He was actually an Enlightenment figure. He was a Renaissance man. Uh, he was probably the most cultured king that we've had since Charles I. So um, I, I'm going to really um, uh, sort of impose on the hospitality of Americans and ask them to give uh, George III another look. Well, if you promise that you're throwing in some Pitt the Younger and the parliamentarian... Pro I, see, this is a, a pivotal figure. You You sort of go from full monarchy to no monarchy save in name only in the in the person of George III. And I might be getting it wrong at either end, but it seems no, to me... No, no, you're not. No, no, no. I think that's right. And you see, the thing is that, of course, it's a 60-year reign. And for the last uh, 10 years of it, he um, was, uh, was insane. And so um, you had the politicians obviously filling in the vacuum, power vacuum there. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things going on constitutionally. The Napoleonic Wars, of course, as you mentioned, the Seven Years' War at the beginning, and then this uh, this disastrous eight-year struggle uh, against the American colonies. So, um, so there's a lot to write about. It's, again, it's not going to be a terribly short book, um, uh, this one. Um, but ultimately, one of the things I'm going to be arguing, really, I suppose, is that America is actually a more more impressive, a greater country than, um, than Americans think because you didn't um, truly rebel against a tyranny. It was, George III was not a tyrant. Um, you actually rebelled for independence and sovereignty. And um, to do that against a country that was not tyrannizing you in any kind of um, contemporary uh, sense of the term was, um, was even more impressive than, than what you did do. Uh, are you are you surprised looking back through this this uh, U.S. U.K. relationship that that the prime ministers of the Victorian era did not throw in with the Confederacy? I know Robert Cecil wanted to. I know others wanted to, and Palmerston held them back. Would it have been better for England had they done so? Well, not just Palmerston, of course, Israeli and and Gladstone also. Uh, 
all um, were totally opposed to any help um, to the Confederacy. Um, the, the argument that Cecil put was that um, if the Confederates had won, it would have um, meant that America would have been knocked out as a, as a um, great power rival to the British Empire for at least 100 years. And so it was um, in Britain's sort of immediate best interests to, uh, uh, to support the Confederacy. I want to make sure people know he was very anti-slavery at the same time that he was urging a... He was, yeah, he, he was indeed, but he wanted, um, but he saw it solely in terms of grand strategy. And, the, and he saw the American democracy, because he wasn't in favor of democracy, and he saw the American democracy as being something that was in, inevitably going to uh, expand its ideology across the Atlantic and, um, and turn Britain into a democracy. And his feeling was, and he didn't seem to care about the other thing that was so obvious, seems so obvious to me, is that a, a victorious um, union, a victorious uh, federal union, a victorious North, um, would immediately have annexed Canada had, um, had the British been on the side of a, con- of a defeated Confederacy. Uh, so, um, so, in fact, he was taking an enormous risk with our Canadian um, dominion. Yeah, well put. I hadn't thought about that. All right, to the present. Uh, if a publisher came to you, Professor Roberts, after George III hits all the bestsellers, and you're in the, the commanding the heights of, of being able to dictate to publisher, but they say, we'll pay you more if you'll write a book about either Obama or Trump, which one would you take? Um, neither of them. There is simply no way that I'm going to write about a living person. I'm a historian uh, rather than a, than a journalist. I'd be insane to go down that route. I know that it wouldn't be... Um, it wouldn't be something that I'd be any good at. And so I'm afraid somebody's got to be well and truly dead before I pick up a, a pen. If and when there is a, uh, a Roberts in the future, which one do you think they'll find more an interesting figure, the transformative Obama or the equally transformative Trump? Oh, I think President Trump is going to, um, is going to sell more books, uh, books about him than President uh, Obama. I can see that President Obama would sell... His autobiography would be a huge um, bestseller, of course it is, but um, uh, whereas that's not necessarily going to be the case with, with Mr. Trump unless he writes it himself, which would be quite a, uh, a fascinating process. But, um, but I think long term, uh, the sheer sort of extraordinary nature of what's happened in, um, in America over the last eight years is always going to fascinate historians um, for, for decades, probably centuries to come. Here we are in the middle of, uh, I'm talking to you, for those who listen to this later in the, in the sequence, during the middle of the second impeachment trial, just in for, in, before the second acquittal will come. How much will the entire Trump story depend upon what has happened since January 6th? Um, well, <laughs> that's a very good point. That's a very good question. I mean, January's, I think you'll agree uh, that January the 6th was, would not have happened without Mr. Trump. Correct. Um, had, had, had he not uh, called that, um, that meeting uh, in, in Washington, uh, well, it, it, it's next to impossible to imagine the storming of the Capitol. But historically, uh, things tend to, um, tend to certain events tend, tend to stand out more and more, the further and further you get away from them. 
And I'm afraid uh, the events of the 6th of January are going, it, it, undoubtedly are going to be like that. I mean, uh, there is a good chance that it'll be in 100 years' time or so one of the only things that are remem- is remembered of the Trump uh, presidency. I, I agree with you. I, I believe, you know, two impeachments, two acquittals, the upset of 2016, and then January 6th, if you get a paragraph in history, if the geological pressures of history push you back into something, that's the paragraph. Uh, I'm not sure that it's fair. Why did that not happen to Churchill? Because Churchill himself had his own disastrous riot, correct? Uh, several of them. I'm wondering which one you're talking about. <laughs> there were lots he, of disastrous riots. When he was Home Secretary and he put down... The square one where the, the suffragettes yes. uh, got, uh, got very badly uh, treated when he was Home Secretary. Uh, if that's the one that you're um, thinking of, then... Um, there are several others, obviously, uh, and, and, some, and some pretty uh, terrible moments in Ireland and India and so on. Uh, I, I wonder whether or not we, and maybe this has got something to do with um, social media, whether or not we are just um, concentrating more and more on, on um, denunciations and giving politicians less and less chance to... Um, to make mistakes. Uh, Churchill made an awful lot of mistakes. Uh, fortunately, they turned out to be minor ones compared to the major things that he got right. But, um, but I wonder whether or not we are sort of less forgiving now as, uh, as an electorate. than the That's were. a very interesting point. I, I, I had forgotten until rereading Salisbury that he presided over a famine that killed a million people in India when he was Secretary of State for India. Not that he was an agent of famine, uh, he did yeah. blame himself somewhat, yeah. but it happened on his watch, and yeah. and I'd forgotten about it in the course of his, you know, I remember a lot of your book, and I'm loving more as I go back through it a second time, but I'd forgotten that, and it's a million people. That's right, and of course, we also had the Bengal famine with Winston Churchill. Uh, again, he wasn't responsible for it in any way, but nonetheless, as you say, it happened in his watch, and to have a million, or in, in the Bengal famine uh, of 1943, uh, three million people die is obviously something that um, you know is uh, is a tremendous black mark against anybody, but not the one that, um, of course, the Churchill knockers and detractors try to argue today that it was it was a sort of genocide and it was intended, and he made it worse. That is completely and utterly untrue. So let me conclude by asking you about the merger of history and television. When Napoleon came out, I believe you made a television show about it, which I have not seen. Am I right about that, Andrew Roberts? Yes, yes. The BBC uh, uh, very generously allowed me to go to 10 countries to, uh, to make a, a three-part TV series about Churchill. It was, I, I think it's impossible to watch now. They never brought it out again. Uh, so it must have been a disaster. But nonetheless, for me, it was huge fun. Oh, I thought it was about Napoleon. About Napoleon, yes. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go find it. I'm going to go find it and watch it. You, so you, my, won't, you won't. I think. I think it's been. I think it's been sort of consigned to the uh, depths of uh, broadcasting house forever. Well, well, that's what happened with my ten part, eight part PBS series on God in America in the in the 90s. I can't find it anywhere, so it's gone to the basement too. So someday they'll come up. But my question is, between the success of things like The Crown. And Victoria, which is quite possible, you know, very, very popular in the United States. Do you suppose that there is a television series? And and by the way, I also mentioned Roadkill and uh, Yes Minister and all the various political dramas. 
is there a television series in the British prime ministers of the 19th century? Because by God, they're more interesting than anyone else I can find. <laughs> it was, that would be my dream, but um, certainly not uh, with the current obsessions that the, uh, that the BBC have, which are not, um, to say the least of it, in favor of uh, making shows about bearded, middle-aged white upper-class males. <laughs> there are lots of interesting women and minorities, though, in these people's lives, and, and you can't get much more extravagant than Disraeli when it comes to mystery. And, oh, uh, no, absolutely, back... and, and that's, yeah, uh, that's the reason that, um, that he's going to be my next uh, subject. I'm going to write about Disraeli. I've got a little book on uh, Lord Northcliffe that I'm going to be doing next year, and then the year after that, for the next three or four years, I'm going to be writing a a big uh, Robert Blake-sized biography of Benjamin Disraeli. Oh, you're taking on Disraeli. That's fascinating, yep. because the big rap on Blake's book is that it's unreadable to Americans. I've given it, to, it was given to me by Richard Nixon the first time I met him to read wow. his annotated book, uh, and it's on display in the library, which I now lead as as yeah. important as it is. But he thought it was the best political biography he'd ever read. And it's it's rough going for an American uh, if you don't know yeah. how British politics work. It's really rough going. Yes. Well, I'm going to try and make it a little bit a uh, little bit easier for you, at least. <laughs> well, that is a great future television series as well. I have taken up a lot of your time, Professor Roberts. Uh, when is the publication date for King George? Um, November, November in the States. Yeah. Uh, well, please come back after it is out. And we can talk again at length about His Highness and then mark wherever it is, four years out, the Disraeli conversation as well. I appreciate your time today very much, Professor Andrew Roberts. The website's still andrew-roberts.com, correct? It is, yes. Dot uh, net. Dot net. Andrew-roberts.net. Thank you, Professor Roberts. Thank you so much, Hugh. I really enjoy being on the show again. My pleasure.